Welcome to Pragmatic Live, a podcast targeted to help product teams define, build, market, launch, and price great products. Today we're focused on price. I'm Mark Stiving, a pragmatic marketing instructor and a self-proclaimed pricing expert. Joining us on today's podcast is Ward Day. He recently left Adobe and ha- had a title there that I love, Senior Manager of Business Model Strategy and Pricing. Welcome, Ward. Hey, thanks, Mark. I am just thrilled to be here with you and your listeners. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, too. So we're going to get to business model strategy sometime today because I find that topic fascinating. But first, let's learn a little bit about your journey and how you got to where we are today. You started out in finance. How did you make the transition to pricing? You know, that is a great question uh, because as far as I know, I have never found a college that offers a pricing degree. So I started out probably like a lot of others do. I started out as a financial analyst, and part of my duties there were working on the actual bids and proposals that were going out to some fairly large enterprise clients. And we considered that to be a pricing role. So what I was doing was looking at the prices that they were charging, the services, et cetera, making sure that we were hitting the margin targets and the revenue targets that we had as a company for each of those customers. And that kind of morphed into this uh, more defined focus on the prices that we were charging. And I found that I really thought that was great. I loved that a lot more than I did the accounting side or uh, the other analysis that I was doing that was more accounting related. Uh, And so I just began focusing all of my uh, efforts in my career on that, and, and then I just went from there and went through a number of different industries doing just pricing, and uh, and I just love pricing still. I'm completely with you. Pricing is a fascinating topic, and there aren't very many of us that do it, so it surprises me more people don't get into the field. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's one of the areas that has such an immediate impact on the bottom line. I mean, when you make a pricing decision – Uh, You know, you're seeing the results of that decision right away uh, on the company's bottom line. You can see whether you've done well, whether you've done poorly. Um, That's always exciting. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you've been in pricing most of your career, and and we're talking to product teams now, product managers, product marketers. How did you – what's your typical interaction with product teams as you did that career? I don't know how you can be successful in pricing without being completely tied into those teams. Uh, And one of the things that I've done over the past uh, few companies that I've worked at is uh, as soon as I get there, if it's not already in place, I'll put together what I call a pricing leadership board. Uh, Some people call it pricing committees, et cetera. But this is a chance for – Um, team members and leaders of different areas such as product management, marketing, uh, finance, legal, operations, et cetera, to get together to talk about what it is we're trying to take to market and uh, make sure that everybody is absolutely on the same page. I mean, you find sometimes you can have an absolutely phenomenal idea on a business model and how we want to price this to our customers, how we want to bill it, et cetera, And then you find out from your operations folks, hey, you know what, Uh, that's a great idea, but technologically we can't support that. Or you can find out from your marketing folks, boy, that's a great idea, Ward, I love that, but that really doesn't support the strategy we were thinking of for this particular product. So it is absolutely crucial if you're going to do a great job in pricing to be 
absolutely closely tied in with those teams. Yeah, I agree. We've seen pricing councils work in a lot of different places. Because you get the high-level departments, high-level people in each of those departments together, and, and you're hearing all the feedback, all the issues. Now, you didn't yeah, mention right. sales. Can I ask, was sales involved? Um, sales typically didn't want to be involved. We would invite them, but, uh, you know, they're usually so dang busy that they just would say, let us know what you decide and uh, then provide us training on it. But I don't want to uh, discourage anybody from inviting sales to the table because they should be invited. Yeah, I always had sales invited, and, and I let people show up if they wanted to, and, and as long yeah. as we're adding value to them, they'll show up. Yeah, you're right. Excellent. Okay, and so now day-to-day, how are you working with product teams? I, I'm, so, so one of the things I find most interesting is when I was actually a pricer, I rarely set prices, which seems unusual. What do you do every day? Yeah, that is a great question, Mark. So I have found the very same thing. And really setting a price the way that I see it is a very collaborative process. I found that if I could insert myself or or get together with the product marketing and product management teams very, very early on in the process, when they're just thinking about a new product or a new service, that allowed me to work very closely with them to define what kind of functionality is are, are we trying to take to our customers right now? What kind of value does that have? What what um, are our customers actually asking for? What is the next best competitive option that they have? When we start asking questions like that collaboratively, that allows us to not only be on the same page as we're starting to take this to market, but it allows us to really be asking the right questions and having people that have different viewpoints on that being able to provide those answers. So when I do pricing, it's very closely tied in with those teams. And generally what I'll do is as I've got an idea uh, of how we're going to take this to market, I will start modeling out different ways to price it and price points and then share that with those teams to make sure that really what what we're modeling or what we're trying to come up with here really does match the strategy that we have for that product or service. Yeah, excellent. I, I find that the product teams, they're the ones who know the value of the product. Certainly as pricers, we don't know that. And so we have oh, to have right. that information to set a price. Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely the ones that are closest to the customers. They're hearing all of the feedback. They know what their customers are asking for. They know what the market is doing. You know, as a pricer, we can be pretty involved and and pretty well versed in some of that, but we're never going to be as close to it as those products people are. Absolutely. Did you find that the more you worked with your product teams, the more they understood pricing and what it could do for them, did it actually change the types of products that they put out? Oh, you bet. You bet. In fact, we would have discussions all the time where they would throw out different ideas about how to price a particular product, and then I could just sit down with them and say, listen, here's some things that we ought to consider. I really like this that you're talking about, but the suggestion that you're making about the model or the way that we actually price and bill that um, doesn't necessarily make sense in my mind for, for this reason or that. 
And so that's that's exactly what I found, Mark. Yeah, I, I, I always found that as well. And, and the more you work with product teams on price, the more they understand how their customers perceive value and what types of things they should be building. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wanted to uh, even say a little bit more about that. And mm-hmm. that is when you can start showing them um, how they can build value into the product or, conversely, the value that their product has that they might not even have seen, but when you begin making that known, especially to your sales teams, and they can begin using that when they're having conversations with their customers. So they, so your product teams begin seeing this focus on value. It's, it's a change of mindset in some cases to where, you know, before they may very well have just been reacting to customers saying, I really want this functionality. But now, as they react to that, they're saying, well, how much value does that functionality have? Um, you know, in some cases, that functionality may actually cost more than you're going to be paid by your customers for it, and it's just not worth it to provide that. In other cases, you're thinking about it and thinking, you know what? That really has a lot more value. Or if I add this additional functionality to what we were thinking about, that adds so much more value that we can really uh, charge a more premium price for that. They, they just get a different mindset as they are developing these products. Exactly. And, and then they start thinking about who's willing to pay for it and are we making that person satisfied or happy. Uh, I, I think it's amazing when product people start to understand and think in the pricing terms that we think in all the time. Yeah, exactly what I found. Okay, so you hinted at this. I, it's in your title. Let's talk about business model strategy. I find this topic fascinating. (laughs) What did you do? You're in Adobe. You're in charge of business model strategy. What does that mean? Yeah, that is a terrific question. So let me take you back a little bit to give you some context. So um, most people, I think, that are listening are familiar with Adobe. Everybody's heard of Adobe. And Adobe, like most software companies, uh, started out with a perpetual type of licensing model. So you buy it once, you use it for as long as you can stand to not have the new uh, latest and greatest functions and features, and then you buy an upgrade. And so over time, Adobe realized that there was an opportunity to really serve the customers better and at the same time provide an ongoing income stream that you could count on every year through a subscription model. And so they decided to develop a pricing team, which had been in the past kind of loosey-goosey. And so what they did was uh, they they took one of the best uh, vice presidents of product management that they had and asked him to put together a team that would be dedicated specifically to pricing and to business model strategy. And that's what he did. And so as Adobe began making that transition from a perpetual-based licensing company to a SaaS, software-as-a-service, or subscription model-based company, that was really the genesis of that title, was what is the best model? In, in the high level here then, we decided that for Adobe it was a subscription model. But then once – and then making that transition of customers over to that, 
And then if you dig even a little more deeply, it was on a more product-by-product basis. So people may not be as familiar with this part of Adobe, but based on the product, it could have a very different model for how we priced it. I think most people are, are familiar with our Creative Cloud subscription where you can just go out, buy it online, you can subscribe to a small piece of the whole Creative Cloud, and you just pay a monthly or a yearly amount, and there you go. And when you do that, you get access to the very latest and greatest functions and features and cool things that Adobe software can do as soon as it's available to anybody. You get it. Now, on the uh, enterprise product side where I worked, uh, we did a very similar thing. We wanted to give those customers also the, the access to the latest and greatest updates as soon as it was humanly available. And we did that. But you can imagine that those products also had different types of ways that it made sense to sell those products. So, for example, some of the products are sold on a model that's called CPMM, which is cost per million hits. That's basically an Adobe way of saying you've got X million customers or visitors to your website every day, every month, etc., and so we're going to charge you based on how many people are coming into your website and you're getting the value of providing your content to them. So that was one way with CPMM. It could be users, it could be any number of things, but that was what it meant for Adobe was uh, business model strategy is all about what model for pricing that and getting it out to the market makes the most sense from the standpoint of the customers. It had to be something that the customers can, number one, they can understand it. It makes sense to them that it's priced that way. They can tie value into it. They can say, hey, I can easily see the value that I'm getting when I buy it this way. It's something that technologically, as a company, we were able to bill in that way, uh, et cetera. So that's probably a long way to answer it, but that's really what uh, business model strategy was all about at Adobe. That was awesome. I want to try to summarize that, and then you tell me if I'm wrong or please clarify this. <laughs> you bet. First off, when I think of business model strategy and when I listen to what you just said, I think in terms of what are we going to charge for. And, yes. and that's a big issue in software. In hardware, it's rarely an issue because we charge for the hardware. But in software, yep. there's so many different things we can choose to charge for. And, and so that's what, that's what you're struggling with. And then what I heard you say was that I want to charge based on user simplicity, so users understand it, right. and then where users get value from it. That's exactly right. Okay. Were there any other considerations? Oh, oh definitely. You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't spend uh, all day on here as much as I would like to, but, yeah, I mean, we took a lot of different things into consideration there, you know, but in, in its basic form, yes, that's it, and it had to be also something that customers could easily pay for. You know, they've got a billing department. They've got, they're going to be invoiced. They've got to pay for it somehow. Is the way that we want to charge something that they can actually pay for? Mm. And so, you know, that was another one of the important considerations. I'm, I'm sure there were tons of considerations, but, but that's such a fascinating problem. What are we going to charge for? Because every software company deals with this nowadays, every software company in the SaaS world. Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and SaaS is so varied. I mean, there's so many different um, things that you can charge for that really are value-based. It's not as easy as how many users do you have anymore, or it's not even as easy as how many website visitors do you have because our customers, our clients, the, the companies that were providing content to their users on the web are getting uh, an incredibly wide types of value from a visitor. You know, it can be a visitor that's just coming in to look at, uh, you know, their bank account information, and that's all they care about. There's really no more value to that end customer. Uh, or it can be somebody who is coming into an online streaming movie or sporting uh, type of uh, videos. I mean, again, a, a user, an, an end user, a person who's on their computer, on their tablet, their phone, uh, accessing a company's website they're going to get vastly different value out of the content depending on what that content is and why they're there. And so as a, a good pricing person, as a good product manager or marketing person, you really want to provide content that's valuable, and you want to get paid for the value of that content. So there's where the real trickiness of putting a good business model or pricing model around that comes in. Yeah, I I would find that job fascinating only because I've always been trying to get my head around all of these different issues that are involved in making this decision on business models. Yeah. And since you've lived it, you now have way more experience. I think that's fascinating. <laughs> it is a fascinating job, no doubt about it. There's never a dull mm -hmm. moment. Yes. Okay, so uh, one more question. As a pricer, I really have to know, you know, back when I was doing pricing all the time, I didn't do pricing a lot. I didn't set prices but I often worked at putting in new initiatives in place, trying to transform the way companies do pricing. Um, have yeah. you had any success at any of those? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's probably the, uh, the second most important thing that I see myself doing. You know, as I spend my typical day as a pricer, that's what I'm working on next. Um, that is – you know, and that can involve a lot of different things. It can involve changing the mindset of uh, of our internal teams, whether that's sales teams or deal desk teams or marketing and product teams, uh, more towards value pricing, like we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, there's a lot of pulling data and going through that data, providing dashboards and KPIs for the decision makers and also providing feedback to them of what's really happening with our pricing. We've made all these decisions. We've got our business model. Uh, we've got our, our compensation for our sales reps lined up. This is what they're doing. Are we meeting our goals? And, you know, if we're not, why aren't we? Where's the soft spot? Uh, if we are meeting our goals, that's great. Why? You know, what's, what is it that's really uh, making that success, and can we build on top of that? And so, you know, it's a lot of looking at the discounting that's going on, looking at the way that salespeople are presenting the value of the products or services. Uh, you know, it's, it's this constant looking at how can we constantly be improving and uh, providing excellence in the way that we're pricing this. So, you know, how are our customers perceiving the value and how are we capturing the price that goes with that value. Yeah, I used to think of that as profit leaks inside the company. Because there's all these And there are a lot of them, aren't there? 
Oh, tons, tons. They're everywhere, yeah. And so anybody who doesn't understand value, the value of our product, uh, any anytime we're making mistakes, we're actually losing profit. And and one of our jobs is to help find those places and try to get them fixed. That's right. I'm glad you bring that up, too, because, uh, you know, if if I leave our listeners with nothing else today than to know that there are a lot of companies who are really not that good at pricing. They're, when you think about the, the pricing maturity curve and when companies get from maybe a basic side of all they do is cost plus pricing um, up to, uh, you know, this world-class pricing that, that some companies do, you'll find out that probably 70%, 80% of the companies out there, even the ones who are well-known established companies, are still doing things pretty basic. Uh, and so I, I want to give all of the listeners a lot of hope that it doesn't matter where they are. If their company is really pretty basic right now, that's a great place to start. You know, there is so much low-hanging fruit. Let's go out, do a few very basic, simple things, and capture that low-hanging fruit. And then let's get better at it and better at it and better at it. Um, you know, to get really great at it, it's um, – honestly, I, I've seen some some folks say that it's, a, you know, maybe a three- or four-year journey to get to price and excellence, to get to world-class. I think it's longer than that in, in practical terms. Um, so there is a lot that you that – the listeners of this podcast can do just a few simple things and really make a big difference. Okay. So I would be very remiss if I didn't ask, could you give us a few of those really simple things, the low-hanging fruits? You bet. And there are a lot of them. Uh, one of the first things that I like to do when I first take on a product or service is to uh, better understand what the value is of that product or service to our customers. And one of the very best ways to do that is just lock yourself in a room with the pricing folks, uh, products, marketing folks. T take those three, if nobody else. And, uh, and sales is also incredibly insightful here. And just say, hey, you know, how, how are our customers perceiving this? What value do we bring, and are we capturing that? And, boy, you can just start writing down on a whiteboard and – and you'll be amazed at how many things you can find that you say, hold, you know what? Uh, if we could somehow convince our customers of all of this value, we could really charge a lot more for it. That's one thing. Um, one of the next things I like to do is take a look at what kind of average discounting is going on. And you'll find when you start taking a look at discounting, in every company I've been in, there is an incredibly broad range of discounts for the same product. You know, you might have some that are discounted not at all. They're, they're paying list price, and you've got other customers that for the very same thing and same volumes are getting a 90% discount. Why? And so when you start looking at that and figuring out how you can tighten that up, um, that's good news. I think a lot of people – when they first see those wide discount bands, they can get discouraged and think, oh, my gosh, our discounting is so completely out of control, I don't even know what to do about it. I don't look at it that way. I look at a wide discount band and say, yeehaw. I mean, that tells me I have got an incredible amount of low-hanging fruit, and there are tons of ways. We don't have time to talk about them all right now. 
but to start rating those discounts in and start really seeing those margins drive. So, so I, I have to jump in here because I love this concept of looking through discounting behavior in our company. Um, now, I, I'm actually – I don't object to broad dispersions of discounting behavior if it makes sense because yeah. discounting yeah, is hey, a right? great – yeah, discounting is a great way for us to do price segmentation, charging different customers different prices, if it makes sense. Yep. But if I'm giving yeah, a 90% yeah. discount to a customer who would have paid list price, that doesn't make sense. That does not make sense. And, and you bring up an excellent point, and that is tying a reason for that discount to that deal, right? If, if I've got a customer that I've got a brand-new product, I think it's the coolest thing ever – but I'm worried about market adoption of it, and I can get a, an incredible lighthouse customer to take this on, and they are willing to be uh, in videos for me or provide feedback. Um, they're willing to publicly say, hey, I use this product from this company. You know, a 90% discount for them might be money well spent. But never is that going to be well spent just to get a deal in the door where a customer doesn't provide anything else of value. Yes, yes. Well, we're running out of time, but I do want to ask a, another big question. Pricing initiatives. We tend to do a lot of these pricing initiatives. Do you have any that have had the big impact on, on one of your companies you've worked with and one you'd like to share <laughs> with us? I have had uh, – probably more than I could even think of right now, but there's there's one that comes to mind that, you know, when I was going through it, uh, it was probably one of the most frustrating things I've ever done, uh, but in the end, uh, it, it worked out well. So let me, let me share that with you. So when I was uh, at Novell, um, most people are, are probably familiar with Novell. It's an enterprise software company, and we had a lot of legacy customers. And we found that a lot of customers had bought the products, bought these perpetual products. They paid for them many years ago, and the only additional revenue we were getting from them every year was their support and maintenance contracts. And as I looked back through those, I found that almost without exception, all of those customers were paying the exact same amount for maintenance today that they may have paid seven or ten years ago when they first signed a contract. And so I started exploring the idea of how we could tie these customers into getting the latest and greatest features and functionality of our software and also our company, Novell, reaping the benefits of that through higher revenues. And it made perfect sense to me that we moved to a subscription model. And so I began uh, evangelizing that with the senior leadership saying, listen, if we can make the move to the subscription model, it is an absolute win for everybody. We're going to make a lot more revenue than we're getting from these legacy customers, and our customers are going to have access to the latest and greatest features and functionality right now. And not only that, but Novell is going to have this ongoing revenue stream that they can count on every year. It doesn't spike when the company or when the customer buys their perpetual software and then tail way off for many years after that. And so I had some level of interest in that. 
but it wasn't as high as I was hoping. So I, I began to model that and said, listen, this is what kind of revenues we can expect over time if we start moving to this model. And with that, I started getting a little more interest. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's, let's go ahead and do that. We're, we're on board with that. Let's test it out and see how it works. And so we, prov- we produced a subscription version of one of our products. And it was one of our major products. So I got that on the price list. And I said, now listen, guys, before, before we can really roll this out and be successful, you have to know that we have to change our sales reps' compensation model for these subscription products because the way that they were originally uh, compensated was they got paid on the first year's revenue from that sale. Now, with a subscription model, of course, uh, the first year's amount is going to be much less uh, because they're going to be paying a lower amount, but they're going to be paying that lower steady amount every year from here on out. And, you know, I got absolutely no support from that. It was crickets chirping. And as you can imagine, uh, you know, when when we started doing our quarterly reports and, and, and looking at the numbers that came in, we didn't sell hardly any of those subscription models. And so really nothing happened for Novell. Now, right about that same exact time, Adobe called me. And they said, hey, we've got this opportunity. We think you might be a good fit for it. Would you be interested in taking a look? I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll take a look at that. And during the conversation, they told me, listen, we have really been looking hard at moving from a perpetual licensing model to a subscription pricing model. Do you know anything about that? And I said, do I know anything about that? Let me tell you. And so, uh, you know, their eyes lit up, my eyes lit up, and we decided it was a match made in heaven. And so I made the jump over to Adobe. And, you know, Adobe has done incredibly well with that model. Okay, but the important question is, did Adobe change the sales compensation to make it successful? (laughs) You know, they did. And that was absolutely key to doing that. And and so – uh, again, Adobe, Adobe was very conscientious uh, and serious about making that move, and so they they got everything lined out. They got the way that uh, the product development teams work on the products for their release schedules. They got that lined out so that there were regular releases that were providing value throughout the year to their customers. Going, they got the sales compensation going. Um, they uh, you know, you might not think of this, but they had to work very, very closely with analysts on Wall Street because they knew that that one-time revenue hit was going to go way down for the first few years while they began making that change. And they had to convince the analysts, listen, this is normal. This is what you're going to see. This is what you want to see. But this is what you're going to see coming out of it on the other end is a lot higher revenue stream that we can count on every year. And so, you know, that was an exercise of working with them over a period of years, but we've just come out of that period at Adobe where we had given them uh, that counsel, and uh, it has been incredibly successful for Adobe. The stock price when I got there was about $27 a share. Uh, It's now in the 90s. 
Nice, and and you get all the credit, right? <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I love that story. There's so many lessons that we could pull from that story, uh, but I guess the couple that I'm going to take away r- r- real quickly is in the world of pricing, we find ourselves in leadership roles all the time yeah. because we don't ever get to tell people what to do. We have to get people to want to play with us. Amen to that. And so that was that was a great part of that story. And then it kind of wraps back to what we started with in the beginning of the interview, and that was we were talking about pricing councils. And although you didn't right. mention a pricing council at Adobe, it certainly seems obvious that Adobe had all the different departments of the company working together to try to figure out how do we how do we implement this new pricing program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we absolutely had to. That was critical, as you say. And that was one of the things that – uh, when I first got there and as we were first moving to that subscription-based model, that was one of the very first things that I did was I got together with the leadership of finance and marketing and product management and legal um, and and got them all on board. We called it the Pricing Leadership Board, and we met on a regular basis. We had monthly meetings set up that we absolutely had to do, but – we were very flexible too, you know. If if uh, things were moving fast and it couldn't wait for a regular monthly scheduled meeting, we just got together. We got together whenever we needed to to make sure that everybody was on the same page. Excellent. Well, we're almost out of time, but uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been awesome. I've had fun, and hopefully, this is going to be really valuable to our listeners. Um, oh, if anyone yeah. wants to contact you, how can they do that? Uh, let me give you an email address. That is the very best way to do that. And that is wardcday at gmail.com. Now, let me spell that because it's a little bit different. It's W-A-R-D, C as in Charlie, D-E-Y. So uh, uh, day as in D-E-C-H-O-Y at gmail.com. Excellent. And to our listeners, we do hope you got a lot out of this podcast. Your feedback and questions are always more than welcome. In fact, they're desired. Uh, Please send any comments to experts at pragmaticmarketing.com, and we hope to see you again next week on Pragmatic Live.